Please open your Bibles to Psalm 81. I want to thank Brother Van Gilden for allowing me the privilege of being here. I want to thank you for investing in a conference like this, those of you who've come to attend. I want to thank the Falls Baptist Church for hosting this meeting. The Bible says, sing aloud unto our God, our strength, make a joyful noise unto the God of Jacob. Take a psalm and bring hither the timbrel, the, the pleasant harp with the psaltery, blow up the trumpet. I thought one of those guys was going to do that a minute ago. <laughs> in the new moon, in the time appointed on our solemn feast day, for this was a statute for Israel. And the law of the God of Jacob, this he ordained in Joseph for a testimony when, I, when he went out through the land of Egypt where I heard a language that I understood not. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were delivered from the pots. Thou callest in trouble and I delivered thee. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. I proved thee at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people. And I will testify unto thee, O Israel, if thou wilt hearken unto me. There shall be no strange God in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not hearken to me, to my voice. And Israel would none of me, so... I gave them up unto their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should soon have subdued their enemies, and turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him, but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat. And with honey out of the rock, should I have satisfied thee? Lord, I pray that you would guide me and empower me. That I would say only what you once said. I ask you to bind Satan and his demons that they would fail as they try to snatch from our heart's soil the good seed of your perfect word. And I ask, Lord, that we'd be good ground eager and open to receive what you have for us. We promise to give you the praise for all that you do. Bless the preaching of your word. Bless our response to it, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, we were required to subscribe to a weekly publication then entitled The Sword of the Lord. It was about my junior year, Dr. Rice began running a big article in the middle of the paper every week about a great soul-winning church somewhere. I was a young man, and I'd read stories of a man who went to a town and took a small congregation or began with nobody and started knocking on doors and met in a rented building and pretty soon there was a crowd and then they built buildings and hundreds of people were saved and people were moved and lives were changed and marriages were put back together and preachers went out from that church and started other churches and I remember as a young man reading that and thinking Lord would you ever let me do anything like that one day in class a teacher stood up it was the preacher boys class 
And he said, some of you guys think you're going to go out of here and pastor a great soul winning church and you'll run a fleet of buses and you'll have hundreds of people saved. And everybody laughed. Well, I didn't laugh and John Nelson, Dr. Ed Nelson's son sitting next to me didn't laugh. I looked over to Brother John Nelson. I said, what's so funny about that? He said, I don't know. There was a crowd when I was young that really encouraged people to do something for God. It was like it was okay if you had a vision. It was okay if you desired to do something great for God. I was an assistant pastor a couple of years. God called me to the First Baptist Church of Bridgeport, and something happened that I was a little irritated by, but it was the hand of God. I was to start on Sunday. I was working to fix up the little house next to the church. The church had about 50 people on a Sunday morning, about 20 on a Sunday night, about a dozen on a Wednesday night. Their budget was 200, no, it was $395 a week. I preached there in March and looked at the February income and the offerings that averaged $200 a week. So it was a very typical Baptist church. <laughs> it was the Thursday night before I was to begin, and as I was working around the house, sweaty and in my blue jeans, there was a knock at the door, and an old man was at the door. Fred Art, he was 62 years old. I was 22 years old. <laughs> he was an old man. And he said, Preacher, are you going soul winning with us tonight? There were two men who went out soul winning the church at that time. And I said, sure. So I cleaned up. I went into the church building. I rummaged around and found some old visitor cards. They, they were years old. I looked through till I found some that I knew where the street was. And I went and knocked on a door and visited the family of a man named Gary Partlow. And Gary Partlow and his wife and their three teenage children trusted Christ as their Savior. My first Sunday as a pastor of First Baptist Church of Bridgeport, those five people came and walked down the aisle and made a profession of faith in Christ. And Fred Art took us out to Sullivan's Restaurant. It's a now defunct restaurant in Saginaw. Most of Saginaw is now defunct. <laughs> and they gave a 10% discount if you had a church bulletin. And there was a preacher from out in the country. I'd never met him before. I ran into that restaurant. His name was Rick Flanders. Now, everybody had told me not to go to Bridgeport. They said, no, but nobody's ever built a strong church in Saginaw. You're not going to be the first one to do it. Everybody's Catholic or Lutheran in that town. All the good people have already left that church. But the Lord told me to go, and when I saw Brother Flanders, he said, oh, I'm glad somebody's in Saginaw. That town has bus written all over it. We began to see people saved and grow. I go to the meetings I used to go to where people were excited and encouraged and talking about doing great things for God, and somebody changed the rules on me. Now I heard a man, good man, you'd know his name if I gave it to you. And he said, well, it seems like there are fewer and fewer churches than ever that are willing to take a good stand. It seems like their ranks are thinner than ever, but God is calling out his bride. And I don't know many men that are interested in a large bride, but they are interested in a pure bride. Well, isn't that sweet? Read your Bible. It'll mess up a lot of your theology. He was not willing that any should perish, but that 
all should come to repentance. Another man came to preach for us at a request of a friend of mine. I had him in. He was a good man. You'd know his name, many of you. We went out to eat afterwards and he said, well, maybe we're not starting the churches like we were. Maybe we're not beginning the schools. Maybe we're not building the buildings. But maybe we're not winning the world to Christ. But he said, if we can just hang on to what we've got, we've done something. After all, he said at the end of his life, Paul didn't say much about winning the world to Christ. He just said, having done all to stand. I felt like I ought to say something. I was mindful of the Bible instruction to not rebuke an elder, but treat him as a father. But my staff, some of them were there. And I said, well, I guess that's okay if you've done all. I have many people who have done, many people who have done all. I'd go to meetings, your pastor would be at them, good people. And they were taking a good stand. And in fact, they were standing against virtually everything. And I didn't disagree with their stand, but I'd leave there thinking, okay, I'm glad you're standing against all those bad things, but is anything good happening? Is anybody getting saved? Is there anything you can teach me to disciple people or build my Sunday school class or reach more folks in my city? And I'm really glad at this conference there's not just a stand. Not just the right position, but a belief in God's power and a belief that we can make progress and a belief that we can do something for God. It's been lacking in a lot of our independent Baptist circles for a long time. This psalm is a sad psalm. As you hear God lament the lack of blessing His people experienced. I should soon have subdued their enemies. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat. And with honey out of the rock I would have satisfied thee. I'll talk to you a little bit tonight on this thought. What might have been. I've never said this before. I just thought it this way just now. So it might not be exactly right. But it seems to me that the will of God is a single path for your life. I believe God has a specific will for your life. I believe there's a place He wants you to serve, a person He wants you to marry. But the single path has thousands of exits. Scores of detours. Lots of ways to get off the path. I almost stopped college and went into the army. wasn't particularly interested in the army. I was just out of money. And I went and signed up and filled out the papers. I'd already gotten out of high school a year early, and I figured it out. I could volunteer for two years. The Vietnam War was on. Go to Vietnam, volunteer for an extra month of service there, get out six months early, take some summer school classes, and still graduate when I was supposed to in 1974. Just about that time, God gave me a job at Roadway Express paying $4.83 an hour when the minimum wage was $1.60. Boy, if I'd gone, I would have never met my wife. I wouldn't have gone to the church where I was an assistant pastor and I wouldn't have been around and available when the First Baptist Church of Bridgeport needed a pastor. What if a young man had not been willing to leave 
a situation that was almost ideal. The church that his father had pastored for many years, where he was the heir apparent, people that he'd grown up with who loved him and knew him. What if a young man had been willing to leave a place like that and come to Menominee Falls, Wisconsin? The preacher who founded this church called me when he was leaving. And he said, I got to get me a preacher man in here. And he talked to me a little bit and I said, the only thing you said that intrigues me at all is that there's a million people in that area. I'm from Michigan. I was born in South Carolina, but I lived in Michigan most of my life. I don't want to become a cheese head. <laughs> what, what if he hadn't been willing to do that? 1927, a young man who'd gone to the mission field a little bit after World War I came home to help Bob Jones Sr. start Bob Jones College. After a little bit of time serving there, he went back to the mission field. There was an old wooden boat that was going to make its last voyage. And because of those unusual circumstances, there's plenty of room on the ship. He was able to put a car and a printing press and all kinds of material. He was going to have a big ministry in Africa, kind of a central hub, and reach out into the villages. But the boat began to leak. The only way they could imagine in those days to get help was to set the ship on fire. And they did. And the boat, the Dutch freighter going the opposite direction saw them and they got off, but all of their possessions were burned. And his wife said, honey, maybe God doesn't want us in Africa. We're going the wrong direction. We've lost all of the things we thought we'd use in the ministry. Always oh, said God wants us in Africa. He just wants us to be able to travel light. No man's ever been on vacation with a woman has not had that desire. <laughs> Nor has any man ever been on vacation with a woman and had that desire fulfilled. <laughs> they went into the interior to a village where no white man had ever been. And the natives were friendly and they were kind and they listened to them. But none of them got saved. Mrs. Grings was a somewhat of a student of medicine in a lay kind of way. And she became sort of a midwife to that village and villages around. She came down with a terrible fever and she hadn't quite recovered. And the call came to go help in another village and she went. She came back exhausted. She went to bed that night and she went to heaven before she got up. They buried her the same day in that hot, humid jungle climate. The letters began to come from America. You've got to come home. You can't stay in Africa with your wife and five children with no mother there, no wife. But something happened. One of the natives came up and he said, Missionary, tell me more about Jesus. And he told him and he got saved. And another native said, missionary, I want to know Jesus. And another, and another, and another. And finally, puzzled because he'd been there so long and nobody responded. Brother Grings gathered them together and he said, look, I've been here all this time and none of you have trusted Christ. Why now are you getting saved? And they said, missionary, we knew your religion was good enough for living, but we didn't know whether it was good enough for dying. 
And now we've seen it's good enough for dying. You see, in that funeral service, they saw sadness mingled with joy. They saw sorrow, but sorrow that was a hopeful sorrow. They saw talk of a reunion, and there was nothing like that in their faith and in their culture. And it was 13 years before Mr. Grings went back home from Africa that time. One of his daughters, Louise, married a young man named Daryl Champlin. Most all of you know his stories. I remember one time Brother Champlin asking me to pray for a sister-in-law of his. He said she's had cancer and she's got to see the doctor. He said, I'm, I'm really afraid she's going to get some bad news. I thought he was afraid the cancer would be back and she wasn't doing well. And he went on to explain this. He said, you see, in our family, the worst thing that could happen to us is that we would die in America. Scores of the descendants of Brother Grings are serving God on the mission field today. And Daryl Champlin, after years in the Congo, went to Suriname where he spent decades in fruitful service. Came down with Alzheimer's disease. (laughs) Read the children's stories. It worked well because they wanted to hear them again and he didn't mind repeating them. A few months ago died on the mission field. What if... What if he'd come home? What if, what if there's a young man here tonight that God wants to go in the ministry? And they're afraid. What if there's a preacher? And God's already through this conference began to burden you with a vision, but it seems not just unrealistic, it seems ridiculous. It would almost be embarrassing to tell anybody what you think God has put on your heart. And, and what if you, because of the fear of man, won't accept and pray for and share that vision? You see, it is the job of the pastor to cast the vision for that church. The job of the people to buy into that vision and believe God with the pastor and work to help it become a reality. The psalm starts with a review of God's deliverance. It says that in verse 6, I removed his shoulder from the burden, his hands were delivered from the pots. He said, I rescued you. You were in Egypt and I took you away. I gave you salvation. I'm glad I'm saved. I like the old song says, I've never gotten over getting saved. I hear people say sometimes, well, that church, all they do is preach the gospel. Well, I doubt that's true, but I don't like your attitude toward the gospel. You may preach something other than the gospel. You'll never preach anything better than the gospel. Not only did God rescue them, He replied to them, Verse 7, Thou calledest in trouble, and I delivered thee. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. I proved thee at the waters of Meribah. He answered their prayers. He met their needs. But He gave them one requirement along with that. He said, There shall, verse 9, No strange God be in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. You know, people are trying to tell us that, that we're some kind of newfangled Pharisees because we ask that our Sunday school teachers not live a worldly lifestyle. They act like we are some kind of legalist because we don't want our choir members to be at the bar on Saturday night and singing the praises of God on Sunday morning. But this business of holy living, this business of separation from wrong, this business of having a lifestyle that pleases God is not some new invention. It goes back to the beginning. It is demanded by the character of God Himself. He said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 
But unfortunately, there's not just a review of God's deliverance, there's in the psalm a result of their disobedience. My people would not hearken to my voice. So, verse 12, I gave them up unto their own heart's lust. Isn't that interesting? The punishment for disobeying God was that they got their way. You ever see a dog chasing a tire? I wonder what would happen if he caught it. Latched his teeth onto that thing. Might not be so happy. I heard about a little boy, maybe three years old, had a nanny. His mama didn't want to be bothered by him. And she hired this lady to take care of him. And the little boy was fussing a little bit. And she said, what's the matter with that child? And the nanny said, well, he wants. And the mother just said, without even looking to see what was going on from the other room, well, give him what he wants. And a few minutes later, the child was screaming. And the mother said, now what's the matter with that child? And upset that she had to go into the room and see herself what her own boy was doing. What happened now? And the nanny said, oh, I just did what you said. He was reaching for a brightly colored wasp on the window. And you said to let him have what he wanted. (laughs) Yes, see, what I want is going to sting me. What my flesh wants is going to harm me. They got their way. He gave them their request. Psalm 106. But he sent leanness to their souls. They got their way. But the second result of their disobedience was they lost God's wisdom. They walked in their own counsels. You know, Christendom is filled with people walking in their own counsels. I'm often asked by young men what books to read. And there's some wonderful books out there. And a lot of them are reading recently written books on church growth. And a lot of the books are by people that really wouldn't share our understanding of what the church is and what it's supposed to do and what the Word of God requires of us and the kind of lives that we're trying to see developed in the church. And and I'll very frequently say to them, you know what, I think it's good to read and here's some books I've read that may be a help to you, but be sure that you don't spend so much time reading books about the Bible that you don't read the Bible. You say, I read my Bible through once a year. Well, that takes about five minutes a day. How long does it take to read the sports page? Or good housekeeping. And then they get these strange ideas and they don't get them from the Bible. I'll tell you what, I've never met one person who said, well, I was reading the Bible and it caused me to take a position that's not TR. Nobody got that from the Bible. They got that from some book. Nobody read the Bible and said, well, I think we need to do worldly music to attract worldly people. Why don't you give them worldly beer? Why don't you give them worldly videos? If you want to get worldly people by worldly methods, you're going to have a worldly result. Nobody ever read the Bible and said, oh, I've been looking at the Bible and I found out we've been having church too much. It's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night stuff. That's not in the Bible. You're right. It was daily. (laughs) 
A revival has never resulted in or come from a lessening of gathering together with the people of God. When revival comes, it results in more gathering together. And it comes because of more gathering together. No, they're walking in their own councils. They replace preaching with drama because they're walking in their own councils. They, they, they say the blood of Christ is mere human blood. They didn't get that from the Bible. They read that somewhere. They're walking in their own councils. They think that soul winning doesn't work anymore, so they got to do something about mass mailings, and that's fine as long as it doesn't replace soul winning and advertising on TV, and I'm fine with that as long as it does not replace soul winning. But they say, well, soul winning doesn't work. They're absolutely right. Soul winning fails every time it's not tried. Walking in their own counsel. And then there is a regret over their decision. God said they would have won the battle. I should, verse 14, soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. Adversaries, God said they would have gained believers. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto Him. And I went to Bridgeport. The church had... Two acres of land on the Dixie Highway. We outgrew that after a little bit and we went around the corner and bought 20 acres on King Road. Later on bought some more and now have 52 acres of land there. And there was a neighbor there and his name was Don Potter and he always called that field behind his house Potter's Acres. It wasn't Potter's Acres, it was Potter's Half Acre. We bought Potter's Acres. And he liked us at first. And we let him coach a softball team that he coached and use the field out there for that. And then he got to not liking us. Our buses stirred up all kinds of dust on our unpaved driveway. And it went into his windows. And we were making noise over there. And they were rattling back and forth on the Sunday morning when he was trying to sleep in. And he got upset with us. He called the township on us. And he was ornery and he didn't like us and he tried to get us in trouble. And one day that old man, Fred Arndt, probably about 70 or 72 years old now, just walked over next door and gave Don part of the gospel and he got saved. He came to church Sunday morning. He came back Sunday night. We have a deal called the Summer Preaching Conference. I bring different speakers in on Tuesday. And he came back Tuesday night. And Roy Thompson was preaching. Billy Graham had just been to Cleveland. And Roy Thompson, I don't know what his text was. And I don't know what his title was. But his sermon was those stupid, rotten, terrible Catholics that Billy Graham worked with. (laughs) And Don Potter had been a Catholic. Until a few days before that. I thought, oh no. Brother Thompson, get off that. The guy just got saved here Sunday morning, Sunday night. He's back on Tuesday night. And Brother Thompson wasn't getting off it. <laughs> so I thought, well, there's another one we didn't keep very long. <laughs> Don Potter, I found out later, he only became Catholic to get married. He's a Lutheran before that. <laughs> Thankfully, Brother Thompson had spared the Lutherans his wrath on that evening. 
Saved all his ammunition for the Catholics. And you come any service Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Brother Potter walks with a cane and he's a little bit feeble, but he always makes his way over. Yes, listen, I'm telling you, God could save your worst enemies. God could take the people who have been the strongest opponents of what you're trying to do and by his grace save them and turn them around. He was going to do that for the nation of Israel. They would have enjoyed God's bounty. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat. And with honey out of the rock. Should I have satisfied thee? Not water from the rock, but honey. So here's a reminder from this psalm for our day. Three things that you've been hearing all week. The first one is that God has power. What did the Lord Jesus say in his last command to us? All power. <laughs> All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I got a phone call tonight and I returned it on the way in. And a friend of mine's very connected in politics. He's at the Republican debate and he's telling me what's going to happen at the convention. And it's because of Rule 40B that was changed last year. And who did it and what's going to happen and all this stuff. And they think they've got it all figured out. And I got news for you. You have the faintest idea what's going to happen. But God's got it all figured out. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't vote and we shouldn't pray for our nation and we shouldn't want it to turn back to God. But, but I am saying that who's in the White House doesn't have a thing to do with what happens in God's house. And I am here to say that it's not the State House or the White House that is going to turn America back to God, but the activities of His people in the church house. And there's nothing too hard for God. There's nothing impossible for Him. There's nothing that He cannot do. And we need to stop putting God in a little box and imagining that He can only do so much in this circumstance and He can't overcome that. That situation, uh, we need to realize God can do anything. Many of you know the story. I hadn't intended to tell it, but I think I should. Brother Champlin, when he was in the Congo, went to a village and preached to them. They never heard the gospel, and they listened, and they were attentive. And a witch doctor heard about it, and he came, and he was opposed, of course, to what Brother Champlin was preaching them about Christ. And the witch doctor made a pile of broken glass. And he danced on that pile of glass and then he made a bed of hot coals and he walked on his bare feet across the hot coals and he said, missionary, that's what my God can do. What can your God do? Look it up on the internet. It's the sermon, Love with Shoes On. Brother Champlin prayed. This was a place where there was no Bible and there had been no witness and He felt like the Lord wanted him to accept the challenge and he took his shoes and socks off and he said, gingerly at first. But with more enthusiasm, I jumped up and down on the glass and I walked across the coals and I went home to the little hut they'd given me to sleep in and I lay down in the bed and I prayed, dear God, if my feet are scarred and cut in the morning, it'll be your name that suffers, not mine. That village, they called him Hallelujah because of a song he'd taught them. Dawn's first light, the faces were peering into the hut and they said, Hallelujah, let us see your feet. (laughs) He pulled back the sheet and he said, there they were just clean and unmarked and unscarred as the feet of a baby. And the village took a vote and when they took the vote, it was the witch doctor that was sent away, not the missionary. God has power, God demands Purity. 
No strange gods. Don't worship any strange gods. Don't try to have a little bit of world and a little bit of God and a little bit of society and a little bit of spirituality. No, no, no. He said to be no strange gods among you. But God requires purpose. Open my mouth, thy mouth, wide. Wide. And I will fill it. Dr. Hudson had a big day at the Forest Hills Baptist Church in Decatur, Georgia. One Sunday school class had prayed that they'd have 25 in attendance. Teacher prayed, the boys in the class prayed. The big day came and they had 10 and then 20 and then 25, but some more came and they had 30. And pretty soon the chairs were all filled and had people standing around and lining up the room. And they're 35 and 40 and 45 and 50. And the teacher said, boys, I'm amazed by this. I don't know what happened. This is phenomenal. I don't know where all these people came from. And one little boy kind of sheepishly raised his hand. He said, teacher, it's my fault. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, back when everybody was praying for 25, I was praying for 50. Well, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. Maybe it isn't time to just stand. Maybe we could start some churches and build some buildings. And maybe we could pray for the world to be saved. First time I ever heard anybody pray for the salvation of the entire world was at a prayer meeting at this conference. The last time I heard anybody pray for the salvation of the entire world was at a prayer meeting at our church. And, and Brother Flanders stood up and he didn't pray for revival in our church and he didn't pray for revival in our town and he didn't pray for revival in our country. Only he prayed that God would win the whole world. Now, where'd you get an idea like that? Brother Gilmore talked about the possibility of fulfilling the Great Commission and he showed that it was not uh, something that was without the possibility and beyond the reach of us if we believe. But uh, I would suggest to you that the Great Commission was fulfilled. Colossians 1.6 The Bible says in verse 5 about the word of the truth of the gospel which is come unto you as it is in all the world. And bringeth forth fruit. Verse 23 of Colossians 1. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled. And be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature. Which is under heaven. Whereof I Paul am made a minister. Now now you can explain it away if you want to. But a plain reading of the scripture. Says that in the early days of the early church. They had gone everywhere preaching the gospel. And they could say that we have fulfilled the great commission. Didn't say everybody be saved. But it said everybody had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're praying for such pitiful little things. We're acting like our God is a vending machine and He's got a few goodies in there and we put enough quarters and we can get a little bit out of there. We're not acting like He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the silver and the gold are His and all power is given to Him in heaven and in earth. In uh, Saginaw, Michigan, a little over a hundred years ago, there's a lady named Helen Bolster. She's very smart. As a teenager, she taught in a one-room schoolhouse. 
The eldest of eight children had a burden for missions, raised $75 for her monthly support to go be a missionary to India. Bought a ticket on a ship. And then her mother died. And her dad said, Helen, I I need you to stay home and take care of the children. And she obeyed her father. Terrible. Have your vision, your hope, and your dreams altered like that. She stayed there till the next oldest child was able to take care of the children. And she married a man named Don Stafford. And they had one child and the boy was crippled. And then Mr. Stafford died. She married a man named Emery Knowlton, and they had three sons, and each of those three sons died. May 14, 1929, Helen Bolster Stafford Knowlton gave birth to twins. She named them William and Winifred, and William lived until July 25th, and then he died. They'd moved to Petoskey, Michigan by this time, and she took Winifred, a little two-and-a-half-pound baby, and put her in a satin-lined cigar box and placed her on the Lord's Supper table of the Parr Memorial Baptist Church in Petoskey, Michigan. And she said, God, you took my four sons and you took my husband. I'd like to give you my daughter. And Lord, would there come from her those that would serve you? Winifred grew up to marry a preacher boy named Don Green. I mentioned this morning for 55, 58 years as pastor of the Parker Memorial Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. And today there are between 30 and 40 of her descendants in the work of the Lord. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. Charles Darby left Williamsport, Pennsylvania in the 1800s to go to the gold rush. And he's one of the few that really found gold. Became wealthy, had a big operation, employed people, including his nephew, who was also named Charles Darby. And one day the gold ran out, and they dug, and they dug, and no more gold in that particular claim, it seemed. And so Charles Darby said, I'm just throwing good money after bad. I've got plenty. And he shut down the operation, laid off the employees, and he sold the material, the equipment that he had, and the claim to the mine to a junk dealer. The junk dealer... Went to dismantle the equipment. He thought, well, I own the equipment. I own the mine. I wonder if there's any more gold in here. He dug three feet further down the main shaft and found the richest vein of gold in that entire mine. Became far more wealthy than Charles Darby, who had first discovered the gold ever became. The nephew, Charles Darby, went into the life insurance business. One of the few people in his era to put a million dollars in life insurance in force in one year. And whenever they asked him the secret of his success, Charles Darby would say the same thing. He would say, I decided I'll never stop digging three feet from gold. What if you're just three prayer meetings from revival? What if you're just three more blocks of door knocking from that person that's going to be a key convert and become an important part of your church? What if you're just a little bit away from seeing a breakthrough and seeing God do something marvelous and miraculous? Open thy mouth. Why? And I will fill it. Whittier has a poem called Maud Muller. Shouts out Maud Muller on a summer day in the meadow raking hay. Tells the story of a 
beautiful young farm girl working out in the field and a rich young lawyer from the city taking a ride out in the country stops at her farm and asks for a drink of water. And she lowers down the bucket and gives him a dipper full of cool, clear water from their well. And as he drinks the water, he thinks to himself, you know, it would be nice to marry a sweet, fresh, country girl like this. Instead of all those girls in the city with all their airs. And she thought, you know, it'd be nice to marry somebody with substance and somebody with position instead of the rough crew that are around here. But neither of them spoke their thoughts to the other. And the poem tells how the farm girl married a rude country squire and the lawyer made her, married a dowdy city girl. And Whittier ends the poem with these words, Alas for maiden, alas for judge. For rich repiner and household drudge, God pity them both and pity us all who vainly the days of youth recall. For of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. Lord, may that never be the epitaph written on our tombstone. May the heavenly record never state that there was so much we could have done. Would you help us instead to open our mouth wide? And Holy Spirit of God, would you speak to the hearts of your people here and to my heart and give us a real and a definite heaven-sent vision of what you'd like us to accomplish for you. And help us not to be timid. Help us not to doubt you. Help us not to worry about what others would think or others would say. Help us to open our mouths wide. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Would you just say, Lord, what is it you want for me? Help me not to stop digging three feet from gold. Help me not to ask for a little when you want to do a lot. Help me not to doubt your ability to do that which seems impossible. Now, Lord, we trust you to have spoken to our hearts. We ask that your servants will act in obedience to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.